Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Guido Van Marley. He's an associate professor at University of Calgary in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. So we're going to talk about uh, some of his research surrounding HIV. So Guido, thanks for coming. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, tell me about your uh, HIV research. What are you looking at? Okay, so in HIV, so I'm trained as a virologist, and over the years of my training and fellowships, I became very interested in viral evolution and looking at how HIV involves in HIV-infected individuals. So that is sort of the mainstream of my uh, research at the moment, is where we look at how does the virus evolve in a particular infected individual, how do they differ between individuals, and sort of figuring out where the virus hangs out in, basically in an infected individual, and, as, and more or less also where do they hide out, because there's a lot of debate on, or a lot of interest in what we call the reservoirs. So a patient get infected with HIV, we know we have no vaccines, there is no real cure, although we had the bone marrow transplant and the example of that was Timothy Brown who recently passed away uh, from leukemia or from cancer, not necessarily from HIV, that got cured by the bone marrow transplant. But that oh, is... How many, years, how many years was he cured of AIDS? Uh, well, when did that happen? That was a couple of years ago. So he was not on therapy. He called himself the unluckiest person became the luckiest person because he had HIV and then he developed and leukemia. And so they had to give him a bone marrow transplant. And they actually gave him a bone marrow transplant with cells that are resistant to particular types of HIV infection because they miss a receptor or a molecule on the surface called CCR5. And he got a bone marrow transplant from an individual that was that what they call Delta 32 CCR5, which is a polymorphism that makes this receptor non-functional. It's not present on the surface of the cell. So the virus can't use it to infect these cells. So basically he got infected or he got transplanted with cells, with an immune cells that were uh, now resistant to HIV infection. And he was basically functionally cured. Probably there was some virus hiding out in other areas of the body because not every cell was replaced, only cells of the immune system, but he could live without therapy. And there are some other patients yeah. that have been treated, treated with that successfully ever since. But that is the only real example of a potentially cured individual. There might right. still be virus hanging out in some deep reservoirs, which is one of the things we're interested in. But compared to somebody else, yes, he was functionally cured. So anyway. Well, so, some people have uh, latent HIV infections that don't become full-blown problems for them? Yeah. yeah. So we have what we call long-term non-progressions, 
Those are people that are infected with HIV, and but they don't develop what we call HIV AIDS, so the acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Uh, but they they don't develop it, uh, so, but they also don't need treatment, so they're not treated, and they don't. So they keep, for some reason, and those individuals that we are very interested in to figure out how that works. How do they keep their virus at bay? How do they prevent themselves or to progress towards this uh, immunodeficiency that in the end will kill you? Because the virus itself, despite some direct pathology that it causes, its main pathology is destroying the immune systems so that you become susceptible to super infections and you die from those. So there are some well, let's get into some of the mechanisms. How does it uh, how does it hurt the immune system in people? What happens? Okay, so that's also one. We've done a lot of progress also with regard to therapy. So now we can keep people alive with these anti uh, you know combination antiretroviral therapies. We're probably going to go into those later. So what happens? So HIV infects immune cells. And we talk about what we call CD4 positive T cells. So those, and there are some other CD4 positive cells like macrophages and other area, other cells that can be infected. Even neurons can be infected, but they are not producing any virus. There are some other cells in the brain, such as astrocytes, that can be infected, but it's not really productive or happy uh, or a big infection. And but they still produce some virus. And there is microglia which are macrophages that hang out in the brain. So macrophages are cells of the immune system that we float around in the blood too, that can be infected too. So it's not just T cells. So T cells are these, you know, we, these people know maybe as T helper cells, and there's a whole broad range of them. But those immune cells and the macrophages uh, are infected by HIV. And so when in an early in an infection or in the acute infection when somebody gets infected the virus replicates uh, very highly it destroys some part of the immune system we're going to go into that later you get a dip in the cd4 t cells or the immune cells but you don't get that overt immune deficiency and then sort of the virus replication dies down or becomes self-limited the immune system comes back up and then you get in sort of like an so in that phase, during that acute infection, people present themselves with like flu-like symptoms. And so they feel crappy, they have feverish, but nobody, you know, will directly say, well, I've got a cold. Or right. I'll probably will say, maybe I have SARS coronavirus too, or COVID. But nothing that would say, from, oh, yeah, I'm infected with HIV. And then their immune system recovers. And the virus basically goes in sort of a dormant state. It's not really a latent state. And latency is where we think about, for instance, like herpes viruses, where the cells are infected and then the virus just hangs around as an extra piece of DNA in the cell, doesn't do anything. HIV, there is a mixture. So in HIV, in that asymptomatic phase, there are cells that have virus in them and don't produce any viral progeny. They don't produce any virus. And there are some cells that produce some virus. But probably the virus that's being made is being controlled by some of the immune responses and so by some immunity. And that's where when we come into long-term non-progressors, so how do you control, how do you keep controlling that? And then over time, 
The virus stays there, but it still induces inflammation. Jews, there's still the immune system is responding, and some of the cells, are, the immune cells are dying because of the HIV and of the inflammation, and then the bone marrow can still, where the immune cells come from, can still keep up with that and keep making new and replace those immune cells that are dying. But then at a certain time point, the immune system, or basically the bone marrow, wears out in a sense or gets tired, can't keep up anymore, and the immune system starts to... So you don't replace those cells that are dying, so more cells are dying than are being replaced. And now you see your immune system, your CD4 T cells in the periphery. I'm going to go a little bit later. So well, look, if you, if, you, uh, if you look at the blood yeah. of someone who's a long-term non-progressor versus someone that's you know actively sick what are their um you know their their cd4 cells look like how are they okay. different what are their other so, cells look like so what you will see in somebody who's immune compromised the cd4 cells are low below 200 and you see a lot of virus in a long-term non-progressor we see normal cd4 maybe a little bit lower cd4 t cells and we don't see actively replicating virus or very low levels. Both individuals will have HIV in their cells. HIV is a retrovirus. So what it does, once it gets into the cells, its genome that's normally an RNA molecule, that's a different type of genetic material than the DNA that we have in our cells. It copies itself into a DNA and then inserts its genome into our genome. So it will become part of our chromosomes. And if it's silent like that, it can stay as long in the cell, as long as that cell is alive. If that cell gets activated, we can wake up the virus and the virus comes out. Once the virus is replicating, then it induces all these inflammatory responses or these immune responses that then wears out the immune, where that then induces other immune cells that are non-infected to die. And so there are cells infected by HIV, and those cells die because of the HIV infection directly. But there are also a lot of what we call bystander cells that are not infected, that are basically turning over and dying because they're activating and their normal immune pattern is disturbed. And that is something that does not, in people that are long-term non-progressors, sometimes that inflammatory response is not there, so or it's really dampened. So there is not a big assault during, even during that asymptomatic stage on their immune system, as well as they actually also maybe make antibodies or they have an immune system that can keep up, that recognizes HIV. And even though HIV changes a lot, even if it changes, the immune system knows how to recognize those new varieties or, and basically keep the virus under control and therefore under a lower level of infection and sometimes not even directly detectable uh, with classical assays. You have to find some other things. And in that sense, stay out of that HIV AIDS stage so that their immune system doesn't die off. And that well, have you looked at, have you, have you looked at uh, CD4 cells again in these two kinds of people? Yeah. Not only, you know, there's there's more of them, obviously, in the, yeah. the non-progressive, so but what else yeah. is different about the cells themselves? Can you 
Do they have different metabolomics? I mean, what can you see? Well, that's that's where people are looking at from what is the difference between those cells. And some of it is also that those cells... So when you take a look, when the cells is dormant, you might not see any difference. But when they get activated, if you would take somebody who would progress towards disease versus somebody who doesn't progress towards disease, sometimes they're immune. And it differs per individual too. Right? It's not just one mechanism fits all. But some uh, have in these individuals have either a different virus in them that is less pathogenic. Others have a virus or have the same virus, but their immune system doesn't react, overreact to it. So that you don't get these massive inflammatory responses that then leads into immune cell killing. Because normally the immune cells, normally the immune system kills, you know, if you get an immune response to any pathogen, it turns on, produces a lot of cells, and then once it's cleared the infection, all those immune cells that are focused on fighting this one infection are being killed off because otherwise your blood would overflow or get stuck with all these cells. So it kills off the cells it don't, doesn't need anymore, and you will only leave some memory cells or cells behind that are ready to be activated again when you get a new infection. And so HIV oh. messes up some of those pathways so that you actually start cells start to get dying. And so that is also to do with inflammation and immune regulators. And some of those immune regulators, and there are a whole bunch that people have identified, that is different in long-term non-progressors too. So there is immune control, so they recognize the virus and keep it under control and thereby control the infection and also the avoid you from developing AIDS, HIV AIDS. And then there is the, the cells are not as responding weirdly or inappropriately, so wipe out your immune system. And there may be, there's some HIV variants identify who do not induce that strong inflammatory response either. So there's both a host site and so the infected individual as well as the virus site. All right, well, what, where normally are um, immune cells taken out of circulation? Does it happen in the spleen, or does it happen in other parts of the body? Like, okay. which organs are, are you know places where these uh, cells are harbored once yeah. they've been created? So you talk about you, you mentioned the spleen, and you mentioned the lymph nodes, and so those are some of the classical immune organs. Uh, you know, people always say, okay, HIV infects cells of the immune system. The immune system is all that stuff that goes through our peripheral blood. So basically the stuff that runs through our veins, through our artery and veins. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. It's not the only site. And one of the things that we look at, uh, uh, together with the people here at the Southern Alberta uh, HIV clinic with Gil that I work very closely, a clinician uh, and a medical director who's been working with HIV patients since the start of uh, the, the epidemic, that not only the cells of the immune system in those obvious tissues, such as bone marrow or lymph nodes, are infected. Other cells, there is immune cells hanging out everywhere in other tissues too. You know, they're in the brain. But there is also this very important tissue that we call the GALT or the gut-associated lymphoid tissue. Uh, 
So those are basically all those lymphoid cells or all those immune cells. And, and there are different you know, types of lymph nodes that line our gastrointestinal tract. And there's a lot of immune cells there. And that is, of course, a main target of HIV too, because these cells can be infected by HIV. It is very logical that we have a lot of those immune cells in the gastrointestinal tract because it's actually open. It's basically exposed to the outside. We eat every day, we swallow stuff. So it's basically outside. Even though it may look inside, it actually is outside. So there's all these pathogens, good and bad bacteria and viruses, good and bad viruses coming in there, and you need to have that line of defense. So what happens is that actually what we figured out that there is a lot of infection going on also early in infection in an HIV-infected individual in those cells in the gastrointestinal tract. And so it, during primary infection, during that acute infection, a lot of those cells actually die. And so your immune system gets a big hit during early infection in that tissue. Well, and then you see somebody recover. So that, that would uh, that'd be, that be a problem because then everything you eat would leak into you yeah. And you'd all of a sudden be under assault. Yeah. So, and that is some of the things where we talk about something like leaky gut. And so that basically, also that inflammation causes your cells that normally are nicely covering your gut, causes disruptions in there. So stuff can leak in. And then what is what we call leaky gut. So some bacterial products uh, can leak into the periphery, into the bloodstream. And then the bloodstream, or we would respond to that and with inflammation. So that would exacerbate inflammation, inflammation and make things even worse. And so then HIV causes damage, then bad stuff comes in, and that causes also damage. So together they create damage. So there is also some ideas that there is also a gut microbiome issue. So the bacteria in the gut, maybe they're working together to keep that inflammation at bay too, because some of the bacteria in your gut actually help reducing this inflammation because you don't want your gastrointestinal tract to overreact to everything that's in there, the good things too. So, but it is an issue, okay. but it's also an issue. It is this, you know, all those immune cells go there and then they go there to die. And what people have also observed that if you give somebody therapy, antiretroviral therapy, and so if somebody during acute infection, loses those immune cells in the gut. Then I said from, oh, the immune cell comes back in the blood, but not as much in the periphery or in the, in the, in the, in the gastrointestinal tract. The virus keeps replicating there and keeps chewing away there at that immune system, even though in the blood it looks okay. And so, this, and so all these, there's these cells that go to the gastrointestinal tract basically to die, and that helps to immune depletion. And then there is also a thing, oh, I'm going to give somebody antiviral retroviral therapy. And so if somebody develops AIDS or, you know, you give them early on, give them therapy before they even develop HIV AIDS, and you control viral replication. That in general shows in the periphery, you get a re replenishment of the immune system in the blood. You see that, your CD4 cells go up. And maybe not back to what it normally maybe was, but really in a good good stage. The immune cells seem to be behaving relatively normal. There's still some of them cases a bit dysfunctional, 
But what you see in the gastrointestinal tract, that population doesn't restore as quickly. It stays behind. So in a sense, uh, you're still immune compromised in your gut. Yeah. So what what can people do uh, for interventions there? So um, I know diet. I would think diet would have a big effect in changing it, and then um, you know the microbiome of your gut would probably be altered dramatically. Yeah. So the gut microbiome is altered dramatically. We don't know how that works, or we're getting close to understanding it. The the thing that it is, what is you know, antiretroviral therapy is still the best approach. Because you and getting newer and different drugs that also target the virus in that compartment, uh, in those reservoirs. Because not every antiretroviral drug penetrates every tissue as efficiently. But with a lot of other, you know, with over the years that we've been working with them, with these patients and with the antiviral therapies, we've come up with some very good approaches to sort of keep that virus at bay. The dream is, of course, to get people off these drugs because it's, of course, not a walk in the park. There's some toxicity associated with it. But compared to what it used in the early days, it, it's it's a world of difference. And even compared to the early combination therapy, so you get therapies of multiple different drugs uh, at one time because if you only would give somebody one drug, then the virus would have an easy time to become drug resistant because it can mutate. But if you give multiple different drugs at the same time, you make it actually very hard for the virus to go resistant to so, all uh, of them. Quick question here. What happens if you um, if you genetically sequence someone with AIDS? Will the uh, viral DNA show up and will your sequence be altered? Uh, you will find, or you mean your sequence, your DNA, or you yeah, mean the viral yeah. DNA? If my DNA, if I get it sequenced you know, and I have AIDS, will it look different? Yeah. And can you so, identify specifically where the insertions are, you know? Okay. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, if you, we can figure out which cells or which parts of the genome the virus hangs out in. Yeah? So, not every cell is infected. But if we get some of the cells, then we can sort of figure out where did this virus, when it gets inserted, we can figure out by sequencing the genome or the DNA in the cells that are infected, that we have some tricks to figure out which parts of your chromosomes does it hang out in, in which parts. And we see that it's relative, I wouldn't say it's, it's, it's random and it's not. That there are places that the virus likes to go or when cells, you have to see when a cell is active, not all the genes in a cell are active. And each cell in your body, so an immune cell versus a skin cell, they have different functions. So they, certain times they need a gene, active and other genes don't need to be active. And what the cells do is they, what they call chromatin, is these proteins that basically condense or fold up that DNA that is not active, that they don't need, they don't need the genes to be expressed there into a complex, sort of like a, a ball of yarn. It's basically like this chromatin is dense and then the virus cannot integrate it. So it will be integrating in those pieces that are active. Now, cells go through sex cycles that are active and not active. So if you land up in an area that was first active and then inactive, uh, then you might find it in a different reason in a cell that has one area that is always active. So you could see different areas where the virus hangs out in. And there might be some ways that in certain people, 
it ends up in these areas that get silenced and they never wake up. Those cells never wake up, never get activated, and the virus never can get out. So that may be different. Or it lands by accident in particular spots that will never be activated. And so the virus will never be activated. That is possible. And so, but yes, we see differences between individuals to spots where it hangs out in. But we haven't, you know, we're not as good yet. Or we haven't analyzed enough patients to figure out a pattern there. There are some patterns where we see from, hey, you know, maybe somebody who doesn't progress towards AIDS that long, the virus hangs out in a particular other part than somebody who rapidly progresses. And can we sort of push and trick the virus to go to or keep it there so that it never wakes what do you, up? What do you mean it hangs out in a different part? What, what do you mean? So it hangs out in a different part of your genetic sequence. So in all your DNA that you have, then it maybe hangs out in particular one area where there are particular genes and in another area where it you know, you have to see your DNA as a long strand, uh, and it's multiple different strands. So the virus can hang out in different in the different strands, but also within each strand, it can maybe hang out at the beginning, somewhere in the middle, or maybe at the end. So it can insert its genome in different areas in the human genome. I hope that makes sense. Huh. <laughs> Okay, so you, you've seen in, in looking at people's uh, DNA that it's, I mean, how many different areas are there? there is are it just quite a few some, clusters or is there a lot? There are some clusters and there are quite some, there's quite some different areas too. So in immune cells, there are certain genes that are active and that's where you see a lot of the virus basically ended up because the virus is, or the DNA is available so it can integrate but then if a cell goes dormant in those areas, then it barely gets compacted. And then you find it in an area that is really compacted. So it depends a bit on the cell cycle or this, the state that the cell is in when it gets infected. If it always stays active, then goes sort of like, gets sort of like with memory cells, they might get sort of uh, immune memory cells that get sort of shut down. Yeah, they get, they hang around, they just live, but they're not really active to produce as a, because there's no need for those cells to be activated as part of immune response. So then you find it in those areas that are then actually very transcriptionally, or like the genes expression in those areas is very low. And so in general, if the extreme expression is high in an area, virus likes to go there because it's available for the enzymes to hold on to the DNA and stick your DNA in there. So, and that changes by cells. And we're, we're looking at that, but there's also each piece of DNA is slightly different. And so that also means like, oh, it lands maybe in an area that is very active. And so the virus will be active too. Okay. So it's it's very complicated. Or it just it's well, seems what, like very complicated. Has anyone looked at... Um other herbs, you know, human endogenized retroviruses yep. and compare them to HIV. Like this, this yep. is probably your first glance at a herb that just has entered into someone. So I would think we can learn a lot from it. Like, you know, as, when it integrates, um, is it fully functional? Does it get rid of, does it cleave off any of the DNA that composes the, uh, you know, HIV or any yeah. of the original, original nucleotides? You, you, you mentioned a very interesting point about so it's like human endogenous retroviruses. These are these remnants of, so these are basically retroviral sequences 
Yeah, so viruses similar to like HIV, but not HIV, that we probably acquired, you know, in ancient history, and maybe some of a more recent history, and they became part of our genomes, and they are passed on to our offspring, and we live with those. Yeah, so herfs, and so if you take a look at human endogenous retroviruses, there are herf sequences, viral sequences in us that are completely functional. They would produce a functional virus, can infect new cells, and that happens while we speak. Uh, but they don't seem to cause disease. There are some examples where we now find that maybe they play a role in MS, but the bulk of them don't. There's also a lot of these HERFs deletion mutants. So they have pieces missing, make no infectious virus. If you actually take a look at HIV, when HIV does its replication and integrates the same way as a HERF does, there is a bunch of these... HIV genomes and viral variants in our genome, and a significant amount, they're actually non-functional. Or they produce virus, but they're missing pieces. Or they're not as good, you know, they're not a functional virus. So you can see that as a property of the virus, it makes inactive viruses too. But it makes so many good viruses, it doesn't, if it has a consciousness like we humans would, we would consider it as a human, it doesn't care because there's still an of offspring. So there's endogenous retroviruses. What has happened with those is we learned how to live with those. So they don't no longer cause disease, except in particular situations where MS, where they have been implicated. But, you know, there's still a lot of debate about some of those things, but there are some therapies focusing on that that actually actually control, or what controls it, why, because we all have those. Why does it go wrong in an MS patient and not in an, uh, so somebody with multiple sclerosis and not with somebody else? But those viruses are part of our genome. And we could have acquired them like thousands of years ago. And they might have gone, maybe they're causing HIV-like illness or some other illnesses. And then maybe what is left is the people or maybe the long-term non-progressors. And what also happens then, they infect the cells of our germline. So they infect our sperm and our eggs. Those cells get integrated in there and then pass on to our offspring. And HIV doesn't infect the germ cells, germline cells as of yet. So we will not pass it on like that through sperm to the DNA in our sperm cells and in our eggs, in our oocytes. Uh, if a child gets infected, this infection happens after gestation in the uterus. So, but what has happened with those endogenous retroviruses, that is probably, they ended up in the, in our genome, uh, in, in the sperm and then get passed on. So all those deletins and even intact viruses. And some of those viruses have just as many genes as HIV. They look quite different, but they look, they could potentially be. And other organisms, other mammals have that too. So you find them in pigs, you find them in monkeys and chimps, you find them in koalas. And there is now some evidence that in koalas, you see that effect of an, a retrovirus like HIV or their equivalents actually starting to become an endogenous retrovirus and becoming part of their genome. And they might actually utilize this to protect ourselves. What's happening with, uh, with HIV? Have there been children born, not just sick from HIV, but born with the uh, virus endogenized, pre-endogenized into their DNA? Not that I know of. 
And, and it's very hard because you need to go to the germ cell lines. And as far, because the cells don't have those receptors. And so the cells so, are not susceptible to HIV directly. So they have to come in through another route like that. Hmm. So what happens during a, so uh, the child is protected in utero, but at a certain time, it still gets exposed to some of the bloodstream of, of course, the mother. And that can induce an, inf that can set off an infection. So it can, but what we also have seen is that there are, you know, and that's how we figured out too, is like a child from an HIV infected mother can, is HIV negative and can be born HIV negative. And so not being infected if we take certain precautions. So if we put the mother on antiviral therapy, so you block the virus or you reduce the virus, and actually deliver the child through like a cesarean or a C-section, because then you take the child out with as, le as little blood exposure as possible. Because then during birth, of course, when it comes out of the birth canal, that is quite, uh, you know, a, uh, an intense experience with, where there's also a lot of blood, the child gets exposed, and that way it can get infected. What they then also do I'll is do, they put uh, the child on antiviral therapy, and that would also reduce the chance if they get infected. Well, what's happened to children that are born with no antiviral therapy? Does the HIV and if they have and HIV kill them, infected, or does it spare them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so if they get infected, they will develop HIV AIDS at a very early age and still yeah. suffer all yeah. the period problems. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, we had the Mississippi baby where they thought that they hit the child hard or hit the child, it's a, but gave the child with intense antiviral therapy at the start. Then you actually hopefully try to prevent, if the virus got into the child during birth, you try to prevent it from infecting anything and maybe you can sort of cure it and prevent infection. And in some cases that might work. And in some cases with the Mississippi baby, they thought, so that was from a, a woman from Mississippi, that's why they called it the Mississippi. This child was on that early therapy then lost to follow up and they thought it was cured but then the virus was probably hiding. So you kept it under control for a long time, but then it came back anyway. So this child had to be on antiviral therapy. Yeah, so if you don't give them antivirals, unless if the child is lucky enough to be a long-term non-progressor, invariably, or in the vast majority, you have to keep antiviral therapy to keep the child uh, alive. So if you compare the, um, again, back to gene sequencing, if you look at non-progressors, Mm -hmm. versus people that, you know, have full-blown AIDS. Have they sequenced the genes of both of those groups to see yep. if there's a difference in where the uh, HIV inserted? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in many cases, this has to do with some of these antiviral responses. So there are these polymorphisms that they have, in particular genes that have to do with antiviral responses and how they respond to those, and that's where the differences lie. But there is also an interesting thing that is like, I wouldn't say that not everybody is the same, but there's a lot of variability in it. So uh, one gene set of genes is a protective in a subset of patients of these long-term non-progressive in another subset, it's another pair of genes and it's a, and it's a combination of them. Yeah. And, and if we look at our natural host, which you know we think HIV came from SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus, uh, so that came from simians, so primates, and macaques, so chimps and gorillas, 
pseudomingabees. And what people have seen in the natural host, that, that SIV that's been around also 20,000 years, that those animals to a certain extent have to learn to live with that virus. It's not endogenized, it's exogenous. Uh, so it's like HIV, it needs to be transmitted from animal to animal, not from vertical, from mother to child directly in uh, the germ cell lines. That those animals have virus, lots of virus in their periphery, in their blood, but they don't have any disease. And the reason why that is, is because they don't, certain immune pathways are not activated. So they tolerate the virus, so they live with each other. And that's probably what you need to get also to become in the end an endogenized virus. So, but that's, well, so, but similar things are observed in humans, but that is, you know, not as common as we think. There are some examples of actually people who are protected from infection, so they get exposed, but then the virus for some reason can't get a foothold. Well, yeah, I mean, but if, if it gets take... into enough, um, enough members of a population, yeah. when they breed, they would successfully breed with ones where it's, you know, the yeah. other members are yeah. infected but not sick, so it could change the whole, yeah. I mean, the whole population. Yeah, so if that's what, 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 if you would, nature take its cause, in the end, that would happen. But then, you know, if you take a look at that, at the current, uh, the cost to the species in certain way. So it could wipe a species out, push the species out in the, you know, to the brink of extinction, uh, that the population is too small to survive, but there is also the population that could survive. But on the other hand, too, there are some things, there are long-term non-progressors that do particular things that in theory, everybody can do, or all the majority of the people can do, but for some reason, the immune system does not decide to do that. Yeah, so there is some training or thing going on that, you know, we have those defense mechanisms in us, but some individuals do that right from the start and keep doing that. And others do that for a while and then lose that propensity over time. And some people that never do it. Yeah, so it is, uh, you know, this is the beauty of nature. That's also why nature is so plentiful on our planet. You know, this is a, in a sense, this natural process where there's this dance between the virus or the pathogens and the infectious diseases to come to sort of a, uh, a compromise. Because if you take a look at it, we talked about the microbial, we're filled with bacteria and viruses that do nothing to us. They're part of us. We can live happily together. And the ones that we know, and are the vast majority, I would say, of these agents are out there and we don't know because if you don't cause disease, we won't analyze you. And so right. that's that's the interest. And they're also essential parts of our lives that without them, we would not function. We talk about the microbiome, there's a virome, a parasitome, a fungome, so fungi, etc. So that's, yeah. And this is very interesting and interesting times with all our new, you talked about sequencing with sequencing technologies. That is, you know, we learn now when we can sequence genomes so easily these days. If you saw that also with SARS coronavirus, how fast we've got sequence and how we can do it. Uh, we're going to find more and more and we're getting better and better at seeing what, what are the factors that control these type of things, these disease. Well, very good. Uh, Guido, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> I would say read the scientific literature. Uh, so, and, you know, check out, you know, check out some things like, you know, you have the HIV AIDS uh, Society, so American Society for HIV Research, the CDC, they keep us always up to date of the latest and greatest developments in those areas. In Canada, we have the Canadian Foundation of AIDS Research, CANFAR, and, you know, you know, we talk about HIV and AIDS and we talk a lot about the biology, but there's also a lot of social issues. You know, we talk about social determinants of health and who are the people who are getting infected. And, you know, it's the you know, it's still a, a disease also of the disadvantaged that people are at a higher risk in particular, or they don't get treatment. So, and the stigma around it, uh, those are things beyond that are also very important. And luckily some of those things have changed, but we still have a long way to go with regarding to the stigma. We have some good therapies to keep people alive, but those therapies are only, of course, available to more developed countries. And we roll them out in developing countries, but they don't have the full access to all the different drugs that we have. Cost is a reason, logistics is a reason, but those are the things. So, yeah, I would just say follow uh, some of the the AIDS Foundation, so it's MFAR, American Federation for uh, Foundation for HIV AIDS Research, and they are very good, and they can update you on all kinds of things with regard to social aspects and the therapy and the latest development. And so, there are also you know. Take a look at some of the scientific literature, the scientific America, some of the science literature, you've probably browsed through it quite a lot. Some of it is very hard to read, but there are a lot of things that right. in these scientific journals that are really, I think, easily comprehensible by anybody. And it's not because we're so much smarter or dumber. No way. We're all, we're, you know, it's, uh, it's, 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 yeah, just keep yourself informed. But that's, that's sort of where, uh, we can sort of uh, take a look. You can check out on the web, on the subject areas that I discussed, and you probably will find me as well as others. I'm just one of the many people who work on this, and I wouldn't say that I'm the, the guru on everything, but I think these are some of the things that you can find. I wouldn't say that I'm... This is, this is group work. All right, Guido. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.